This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. The war against Ukraine has taken an ominous turn with more civilian targets and a growing number of civilian casualties. This, in addition to growing numbers of women, children, and families losing their homes and fleeing the country. The early part of the attack has not gone as Putin expected. To say the least, he expected a quick victory after easily overrunning the country. Instead, Russian forces are meeting stiff resistance and almost universal condemnation around the world. And while there are reports that Russian forces have made some strategic strategic gains, Ukraine's defense ministry says as of today, nearly 6,000 Russian soldiers have been killed, as well as some 2,000 Ukrainian civilians. Will this make the Russian dictator more dangerous? He announced that he has put his nuclear forces on alert. How real is the nuclear threat? Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been asking, practically begging the West to declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and it's a demand the West is categorically refusing. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has referred to that as the nuclear option. We'll drill down on all of that. We want to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740, if you have thoughts on how the West is reacting. Right now, let's go to Dr. Roland Paris, a professor of international affairs and director of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, Dr. Lucan Way, who is with the Center of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, and also at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Charles Kupchan, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States. Thank you all, and welcome. Hello. Hello. Hi, good to be with you. So uh, let's begin with Dr. Kupchan. Uh, how do you read the escalation that we have seen over the last couple of days in terms of uh, hitting civilian targets? I think that uh, this shift in the Russian strategy is a response to the fact that the initial invasion did not go as smoothly and quickly as Putin and his officials, his military officials, expected. Uh, I think that Putin really believed what he said in his speeches, that is to say that this is a neo-Nazi regime in Ukraine, and behind every Ukrainian is a wannabe Russian. We'll send our troops in, and the Ukrainians will fold. Well, the opposite is happening. The Ukrainian military is putting up a great fight. The Ukrainian people are seizing, and I'm Unfortunately, my prediction is that Russia will turn up the heat, will go after civilian targets, and that it is more likely than not that they are able to take over major cities in eastern Ukraine, including Kiev. Dr. Lukanway, what do you think? No, I mostly agree. I mean, I think that um, they, you know, they, Putin clearly, you know, does not understand Ukrainian politics, and he really believed his own rhetoric that that the Ukrainian government was a puppet government, which would you know just a little push and the whole thing would collapse. Um, and that has absolutely not happened at all. I mean, this is you know, not totally surprising to the rest of us, uh, but certainly it was to Putin. And um, and so basically, you know, Putin's in a position where he's feeling desperate. He's he's suffered enormous uh, sanctions, and what I worry about, I'm, I share concerns of. Uh, of Dr. Kupchan that, you know, a desperate Russia is a very violent Russia. And so I think we're likely to see a lot of, um, you know, extreme levels of civilian casualties. 
know, I, I still think that, you know, there's a chance that, that Ukraine could hold out, uh, mainly because, you know, it's true that the Ukrainian army is much smaller than the Russian army. They, they you know, traditionally have spent about a tenth of what the Russian army has spent on, on military, and they're much less, you know, uh, experience. I mean, the Russians have been in, in, in Syria and in Chechnya, and there's a, many of them, not all of them, are battle-hardened. But, you know, the, in, in Ukraine, you have the entire population behind the government. People have begun referring to it as the 40 million army, which I think is really appropriate. Even sort of people who are disabled, you know, out there making Molotov cocktails and the like. So I think that, that you know, it's going to be extremely horrific and bloody, but I think Ukraine still has a chance to sort of hold on to major cities. Dr. Paris, uh, one of the things that's been said is uh, uh, that that it will get more more brutal and tougher on civilians. But on the other hand, uh, people point out the way they fought in Grozny and in Chechnya, but they're saying maybe they won't go that far because Ukrainians are fellow Slavs. Uh, what do you think? I am just as concerned as your other two guests with what lies ahead. Uh, you know, there, there's clearly there's frustration on the part of Russia and their default uh, military strategy is one of brute force. And uh, now they, the numbers are clearly on Russia's side uh, and they can pour more numbers into this battle. On the other hand, the morale is on the Ukrainian side and the longer they can hold out, the more pressure there will be on Putin not just because these um, really unprecedented economic sanctions uh, will bite, uh, are having an effect, major effect on the Russian economy and likely also on powerful people within Russia who have not necessarily felt that kind of pressure before, but also because the vigor of the Ukrainian defense has inflicted real costs in terms of uh, battlefield deaths on the Russians themselves. The longer this goes on, the harder it will be for Putin to shield from his own people the extent of the combat that's taking place in Ukraine. Are uh, are Russians aware of the high number of casualties so far? Have the, the bodies started to come back home? Do any of you know? Uh, I don't know. I suspect uh, that that Im- that there are no images of Russian uh, bodies or, or, or casualties or reports of death uh, on Russian uh, state media. But perhaps uh, uh, your other guests have a clearer view into that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know specifically, but I do know that you know, there's only so much, so long that you can hide this. Um, you know, Ukraine's not that far away. Furthermore, you know, I think um, one big difference, which, you know, Russia behaved incredibly brutally in Chechnya. Um, this is the first time they've made an attack on a country which is both extremely open and there are just a lot of journalists on the ground. So the, the, the extent to which they can hide these atrocities is much more limited than in, say, you know, Syria and, and, and Chechnya. And the, the other thing is that, like, you know, I, my bet is that vast majority of Russian soldiers do not understand why they are there. I mean, you have to remember, Ukraine is a place where most Russians have relatives. This is where their grandma lives. They're attacking where their grandma lives. They're, they're, they're throwing bombs into sort of, uh, you know, apartment buildings where their sister-in-law lives. I mean, this is, you know, this is very close to home. And so it, I don't think it's going to take that many casualties to really sort of have a huge, uh, have a huge hit on, on, on Putin's popularity. Dr. Kupchen, uh, is it? Uh, do you have any sense of whether there is uh, more than low morale, but disaffection among Russian troops? And what about the military commanders? Yeah, I mean, I agree with with the comments that both Roland and Lukin have made, and the, uh, we are hearing thousands of Russian casualties. I have no way to to confirm that number. And it is also the case that Russia holds a tight grip over mainstream media, but it it does not uh, uh, seal the country off. You know, the Internet is generally not blocked in Russia like it is in China. People over time will get a better sense of what's going on, especially in the cities, the elites, less so in the outlying areas where they're heavily dependent upon state-run media. 
But but I think that, you know, let's put it this way. There is an inescapable asymmetry militarily in favor of Russia, but an asymmetry politically in favor of Ukraine, in part because we know from from history that people are willing to fight harder to defend their homeland to, than to occupy someone else's homeland. And we're seeing that right now. I mean, Zelensky has really risen to the occasion. And I do think that lots of Russians are having second thoughts. I, you know, the night that this that this started, I was watching CNN, uh, distraught as hell. And then about 1.30, I, I went upstairs getting to bed at 1.30 in the morning, and it was 9.30 in the morning in Moscow. And I got an email from a high-ranking, influential Russian, who's I will not mention, and it, and it contained three words, I am devastated. And I think that many Russian influential elites really did not believe this was going to happen. They're shocked that Putin has invaded a country that they see as brethren, as kin. And I even think that the people around Putin, whose yachts and bank accounts are now being seized, are having second thoughts about whether they want to stick with this leader for the long run. Uh, it's also, I mean, it's been said that he is increasingly isolated. We've all seen the pictures of that, like, crazy table uh, that he sits at with he well separated from the the people at the other end. I think it's 50 feet or something. Uh, and Emmanuel Macron has said that his mental state is, is altered anyway. Um, how important is that, Dr. Wei? Uh, unimaginably important. You know, here you have a man who, you know, the, the power system in Russia is incredibly personalized. You know, there's sort of very few checks on his power. I mean, if you watch his speeches, um, you know, they're extemporaneous. He, you know, one has a sense that he, he's just like operating on his own, solo pilot. Um, and you had to have known that sort of any sort of, you know, kind of semi-sentient military advisor would have told them that this is going to be very difficult. You know, you know, it's one thing to sort of invade the, the LNR, DNR on the border of Russia, the sort of separatist territory, a whole other thing to attack the, the capital of a major European um, country. Um, but he's clearly very isolated. And yes, we should worry about his mental state because that is, you know, that's going to determine everything. Um, and, you know, he, you know, he's clearly sort of lost it at some level. So, I, you know, I think... That's right. And um, we should worry. Dr. Paris, uh, I was listening to uh, an, an American reporter there, an expat reporter who uh, is originally from Russia. She was in Russia. And this is at the very beginning. And she was saying that really the numbers of people dissenting openly is very small and that at least at that point, which was only less than a week ago, most Russians believed that this was kind of a defensive move to fend off, you know, uh, NATO at the borders of Russia. Do you think that has all changed? Well, I, the the potential for uh, public unrest in Russia is always there. I think that if this were to continue for some time uh, that the disaffection among uh, certain elites and within the broader population, certainly the urban population, would pose a real uh, problem for uh, for Vladimir Putin. Which and and we've seen some early possible indications of this with certain prominent uh, industrialists uh, making public statements of. Uh, of uh, unhappiness with what Russia has been doing. And of course, the protests that we've seen on the streets, it hasn't really caught fire yet. But I'm sure that Putin, because he's always been terrified about, uh, you know, public uh, uh, demonstrations, uh, is is feeling a great deal of pressure to try to wrap up this operation as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, I think that creates a kind of incentive for him to do whatever it takes to uh, to topple the uh, government in uh, in in uh, Ukraine and to take Kiev. 
And, uh, and so uh, he's just as aware, probably more acutely aware, uh, of the ri- political risks he faces, faces at home as anyone else. And that might actually encourage him to become even more reckless than he's been. I'm going to give the numbers out again, people in the audience. I'd like to know what you're thinking and feeling as we watch this unfold. Of course, we have a a huge Ukrainian-Canadian population in this country, so many people here also have relatives over there, and uh, there's overwhelming support for supporting the Ukraine. The number, not, uh, not the Ukraine, sorry, Ukraine. Uh, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. One of the things that I found very noteworthy is Zelensky, the president, has practically been begging the West to declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine, and the West seems to see this as the line in the sand, the thing that could trigger World War III. Uh, please explain that, uh, Dr. Kupchan. You know, Biden early on said, we're not going to send U.S. combat troops. And another way of putting that statement is, we're not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. I think that's the right judgment. There are, in my mind, you know, a couple of different ways in which you could see spillover. One would be to try to put in a no-fly zone, and I think it, it's not going to happen. Why? Because if NATO tried to enforce a no-fly zone, American aircraft, German aircraft, Polish aircraft would essentially be in a hostile airspace with Russians. They would shoot at each other and some would come down, and, and that really is the beginning of war between NATO and Russia. So I think the chances of a no-fly zone are near zero. Less unlikely is the prospect of Russia trying to interdict arms that are coming into Poland from NATO, I'm sorry, into Ukraine from NATO countries like Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania. And we know that the arms are flowing. The U.S., Germany, other countries have announced that they're sending Javelin anti-tank missiles, as well as Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, given that the airspace is closed, those are going to come in over ground. Might Putin take a shot at a convoy coming through Poland toward the Ukrainian border? Who knows? If he does, that would invoke Article 5, and, and we, I think we would see a wider war. I'm not predicting that that's going to happen. I don't think anybody, including Putin, wants to go to war with the West. And and let's keep in mind that he's a tough customer and he keeps taking bites out of his neighbors, but not NATO neighbors, Georgia, Ukraine, Nagorno-Karabakh. But so far, he's stayed away from the Baltics and other countries in NATO's eastern flank. I'm guessing that's the course he will follow. Dr. Wei, isn't it a bit late to be sending those weapons in? Um, it's never too late. I think, I mean, first of all, I agree with, uh, Kupchan that I think that, um, you know, it's right to take the no-fly zone off the table. I think that it's, um, it's understandable, you know, why there's been a demand for that. But if you look at the countries where we've implemented a no-fly zone at Iraq in the 1990s, Bosnia and the former Yugoslavia, and then Libya in 2011, these are all much weaker states, much nuclear armies that don't have nuclear weapons, and I, and I think that the sort of it would be a very dangerous decision to implement um, a no-fly zone. I mean, I, I think that um, we just need to focus with the, you know, thankfully, European, ha- almost every European country has has promised uh, lethal weapons, including sort of countries like Germany and Finland and Sweden that have traditionally been neutral. So, I mean, I'm actually, you know, quite heartened um, by the, the European response. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it's, you know, anything will make a, a massive difference right now um, in, in Ukraine that we can give them. Dr. Paris, your take on uh, the no, no-fly zone? Uh, you know, it, the no-fly zone term sounds like a kind of clinical exclusion from an area. But as Charlie suggested, it's going to war against Russia. 
it would not only involve aerial combat between NATO and Russian forces, it would also involve uh, necessarily NATO attacking ground-based Russian air defense units. And if uh, NATO planes are targeted from, you know, within uh, Belarus territory or Russian territory, what are they going to do? This has the potential to spin right out of control. Uh, on the other hand, we Western governments, NATO governments, are all in a really terrible position because uh, there's going to be more and more and more pressure to do more to defend what is clearly a heroic uh, uh, effort by uh, the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian people to defend their country. And uh, we have to be extremely careful. Remember, you know, World War I started with an assassination in Sarajevo. But a few years later, nobody remembered how it started. Well, exactly. And, and speaking of assassination, I just saw a report attributed to uh, the Ukrainian president that there was a, there was a team of Chechen assassins assassins sent to uh, kill him and uh, it was thwarted and it was thwarted because they got a tip from some high-ranking official who did not agree. Interesting. I think that was a brilliant move by Zelensky. Even if it's not true, he has sown paranoia within the ranks of the security services in Russia. Um, you know, <laughs> no better, you know, that was just a brilliant, that statement was a brilliant move by, by Zelensky. Uh, so are you saying you don't think it's true? No, I think it's, I, I'm, it very well may be true, but even if it's not true, uh, I mean, I, um, it, you know, I think, you know, to so fear of sort of divisions within the ranks is, is you know, is, I think, going to help um, Ukraine's cause. I'm, I'm not, you know. His, I mean, he seems to, uh, I mean, he is really rising to the occasion and he's uh, an international hero now. So he's just talked about that. And then there was the famous reaction to when the Americans offered to evacuate him, saying, I need weapons, not a ride. What kind of a role is is just his emergence, Dr. Paris? You know, it's just another example of how history is full of these unpredictable um, twists that can be shaped by the character of individuals. And uh, his decision not to flee, you know, his um, what is clearly not just his physical courage, but his but the deeper um, uh, strength of character that this uh, crisis has revealed has been just extraordinary. And I think that's why it's so inspiring to so many people. And it's so difficult to imagine that we wouldn't do absolutely everything within our power uh, to defend him and Ukraine. But there is also the brutal uh, facts of the military power of Russia versus the military power of Ukraine. And Russia has a lot more that it can pour into this fight, and that's really uh, disquieting. Dr. Just broaden the lens for a second, because I think it's not just Zelensky that's risen to the occasion. It's the West, it's civilized countries around the world that are really, in some ways, holding the narrative in a very impressive way. You know, Biden tried to get ahead of Russia because Russia is very good at information warfare. And he disclosed a lot of information, so much so that many intelligence officers said, hey, it's too much. But I think that the U.S. and its allies have gotten ahead of the curve. They have won hearts and minds. Zelensky is now a global rock star. And I have to say, I am quite impressed by the solidarity that this has, this attack has engendered, as well as the scope of the, of the response. I don't know about Roland and, and Lucan, but, you know, the taking these, these, these banks off swift, going after the central bank's uh, assets, it's, it's freezing its reserves abroad. I mean, this is this is going almost to the full Monty. We haven't obviously seen sanctions against the flow of oil and gas, but these are these are far more severe sanctions than I think many of us expected. Hmm. I, I would agree with that. I also I agree with uh, 
Dr. Kupchana, I think, you know, Biden deserves um, a fair amount of credit. I mean, this could have been very, you know, very differently. You know, Putin, I'm sure, intended to make the start of the war very opaque. You know, was it Ukraine's fault? Was it Russia's fault? But Biden's, you know, impressive and aggressive use of intelligence made it utterly clear to everyone that it was Russia's aggression. And I think that moral clarity really set the stage for both, you know, Zelensky's response, but yes, I mean, absolutely, the West has responded with, you know, enormous amounts of unity and really packed a punch, an unprecedented punch into the uh, Putin regime that we've never seen before. I mean, you know, the sanctions that have happened so far, you know, they haven't really seriously hurt the Russian elite. Um, you know, they've still been able, the Russian elite, the oligarchs, they've still been able to, you know, shop in Paris and visit their villas on the on the coastline of Italy and the like, but this is really hurting Putin where at first. And I think, you know, both um, the West response and Zelensky's sort of moral clarity and bravery has been, have been essential behind that. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls and uh, callers. Please make your comments concise. Levy in Toronto. Hi, Levy. Hi. Uh, okay, I want to make a few comments about uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Number one, I uh, survived with my family in the Second World War in this part of the world. Uh, and I had to deal before the war and during the Second World War with fascists, Nazis, and socialist, communists, whatever you want to call them. There's no difference between them. All of them are murderous, criminals, a gang of, of murderers. Uh, but they have, they're wise enough, not enough, to fool other countries. Remember Hitler? He had a con- an, an agreement, or more than a treaty, with Soviet Union at that time, of non-aggression agreement. They broke it. Then uh, they signed it. Levy, thank uh, you for your call. There's a lot of noise on your line, so um, I, I, I hear you. This must be particularly upsetting for people who have survived the Second World War, especially in that part of the world. Uh, let's hear from Murray and Malton. Hi, Murray. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. You're on the air. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, oh, I got feedback again. I'm going to have to call back. Okay. Uh, can you hear me okay? I can hear you fine. Go ahead. Okay. I'll just blurt it out. It's uh, uh, Sunday night or Sunday, early Sunday morning. I saw a YouTube video where somebody reported Russians uh, shot their own fuel tanks or fuel trucks. That's why they're having problems with uh, getting back into Ukraine. But maybe it was a division thing. Somebody's trying to put a, uh, a wedge further into that division thing. Okay, uh, Murray. Thanks for that. Yes, uh, there have been reports that uh, that some Russian soldiers uh, uh, you know, damaged their equipment so they wouldn't make it to the front line. There were reports that some of them were told they were going on a training exercise and they had no idea where they were. All kinds of reports. Uh, you know what they say, that uh, the truth is the first casualty of war. So who knows? Uh, Sita and Mississauga. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Go ahead. Um, this war is so sad since we're all going through such a stressful time. Ukraine president is an example of what all other leaders should be. <clears throat> he is so brave. <clears throat> Sorry. And he put his life last to defend his people. It's amazing that this country is still standing up alone to Russia and so far is winning. I'm happy with the West, the West and the rest of the world doing all they can to support Ukraine. Okay, Sita. Thanks. Okay. Uh, so I think, uh, clear to say that, uh, and we will get to this in our next segment, that there is a lot of support for standing with Ukraine, whatever that means. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I want to talk about Putin saying that he put his nuclear forces on alert. Uh, some people say uh, that's it's not a direct threat. Some people say it is. Dr. Kupchan, how do you see it? I saw it as a, a sign that 
all is not well in Vladimir Putin because it, it is a it, it's crossing a certain Rubicon to threaten nuclear war. And I haven't seen any follow through. Maybe maybe it, uh, our colleagues on the call could could shed more light. But, you know, I would be looking for putting ballistic submarines into the ocean, manning missile silos. I mean, I haven't heard any reports of an actual increase in nuclear activity, because if that were the case, then then this really would be a very, a varying worry, a very worrying moment. But I, I think it's I think it's mostly bluster. Uh, I think he was simply trying to engage in yet another bout of coercive diplomacy. Although I do have to say that in one of his speeches recently, he said, you know, anybody who interferes with us in Ukraine will pay a price on a level they've never seen before. That was also a veiled threat with perhaps nuclear implications. And that's why, as I said earlier, I do worry about the potential for a Russian effort to interdict arms that are coming into Ukraine, because, you know, these are arms that are going to send body bags back to Russia. And I think one big question that, that needs to, to be answered, and we don't know yet, is how far west will Putin go? Mm-hmm. Let's assume he can, he can take over Kherson and Kiev and Kharkiv. There's still several hundred miles from the Dnieper River to the border with Poland. That's a lot of territory, even for 200,000 troops. So it's conceivable to me that there might be a a, yump, a rump Ukraine with a capital in, let's say, in, in Lvov. Um, how's that going to play? Uh, this is, this is uh, and we don't know where the end game is, but I do think it's safe to say we're going to see the remilitarization and redivision of Europe, and we're going to be back in something resembling the dangerous days of the Cold War. Dr. Paris, uh, again, how real is the nuclear threat? Well, uh, I think, you know, Charlie put his finger on it, which is that U.S. intelligence agencies, the intelligence agencies of other uh, NATO countries will see if there are uh, actions taken by Russia to uh, put their to put their uh, their nuclear weapons into into a different disposition, and uh, you know uh, I haven't heard any reports to that effect. Uh, on the other hand, Putin, you know, his speeches. I uh, did a research project a little while ago where I read most of his major speeches for the past decade, and they've become increasingly unhinged, uh, especially very recently. And his invasion of Ukraine was, you know, in some ways it was consistent with his military interventions elsewhere, but there was a reckless quality to it, uh, to that decision, that was surprising to me. Uh, and if he is feeling under a tremendous amount of pressure, uh, he may become less predictable as an actor. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is, you know, that he's got his finger poised over the nuclear button by any means. Uh, but I think that we need to, you know, treat this situation as one that is potentially extremely dangerous. Uh, and uh, it's, it's all the more reason for us to be thinking about the implications of everything that we do. Mm. Uh, Dr. Wei, what do you think? I mean, I agree with the, what both, uh, uh, both have said. I mean, I think that, you know, we need to take him absolutely seriously um, at what he says, and I think you know, be aware of that. At the same time, so far we haven't seen, you know, the kinds of actions that we would expect if if if, if nuclear war were truly imminent. I mean, I do think that you know, I do uh, wonder whether, you know, if you were going to move in that direction, you know, we have to think about sort of what the behavior of other people in the Russian state would be that he would have to worry about sort of, um, you know, suffering a coup. Because I have to believe that most of the Russian elite really does not want. Um, um, a, uh, a nuclear war. So I think, you know, he has to be concerned on his end. But I, I think I would sort of echo definitely uh, Dr. Kupchan's concern that, you know, we should expect, um, you know, Russia to, you know, go to right to the line of conflict. 
I also would like to say something a bit about, you know, there was a caller who mentioned World War II and Western Ukraine. I mean, to me, uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that Ukraine has a sort of history of, you know, of, of, of guerrilla struggle, insurgent struggle against occupiers. It took, you know, the, one of the most repressive totalitarian states in the globe after World War II, about a decade, suppressed the Ukrainian insurgency um, in Western Ukraine. These are the same Western Ukrainians who overthrew two autocratic governments um, in in, in uh, the 2000, 2004 and 2014. You know, if it comes to that, you know, we, we should expect a very violent insurgency. And I think the question, what I'm sort of looking uh, out for... Dr. Lucan, of, we've got to, sorry, oh, wrap things up for, um, for time. Um, uh, thank you all, Dr. Charles Kupchan, Dr. Lucan Wei, and Dr. Roland Paris. Really appreciate your time. I hope we talk again. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. You. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, we will talk about some of the local ramifications of this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. At this point, the vast majority of Canadians are solidly behind Ukraine. A new Maru public opinion poll reveals 91% of Canadians stand in solidarity with Ukraine and in full opposition to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Will that change as we start to feel the economic fallout here? Yesterday, we talked about further huge hikes in gas prices with the first two cents taking effect overnight. And now Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is warning about the effect on food and agricultural products given that Ukraine is the ninth largest producer of wheat in the world and the fifth largest producer of corn. And of course, we have already seen big food inflation. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion, and Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Well, thank you. Uh, John, uh, so Canadians are behind standing with Ukraine, but uh, how far does that go? Well, not only looking at this research, but the other data, which I've just got in and haven't published yet. The one thing that, of course, we all concerned about is nuclear war. Um, two-thirds of the people in this country do not believe that Vladimir Putin was bluffing. They think it's quite possible. They think two-thirds think we're staring down the barrel at World War III. So it doesn't get any more stark than that. In a conventional war, 60-odd percent of the people in this country would be sending troops. That's They tilt in that direction. But once we get to the more severe trigger point, then it becomes a, becomes a humanitarian perspective. I can tell you from the research I've just finished that there is a... Uh, I won't call it overwhelming, but almost, uh, in Canada and the United States to accept immediately 200,000 refugees from the Ukraine. So there's a very humanitarian approach to this, um, but there's also a deep concern that there's a tripwire somewhere in this equation that may make it very difficult to actually rescue a country. And, and I think that's playing very heavily on people's minds. Okay. Um, Sylvain, uh, I think... No one is surprised that this is having an impact on gas and diesel prices, but uh, I don't know that people realize that Ukraine is what you call the breadbasket of Europe. Yeah, and again, people may think, well, it's Europe, it's far away from us. Well, not really, uh, because if... uh if access to commodities in Europe uh, is a challenge, uh, it will impact prices here. Uh, a bushel of wheat, uh, actually this morning, uh, uh, the uh, value of a bushel of wheat just surpassed 10 bucks U.S. for the first time in 14 years. Well, guess what happens with, uh, with a bushel of wheat here in Canada? Same thing. And so everyone is impacted by what's happening. And uh, that region in particular is is quite critical for, for a couple of reasons. One, grains. 
So, and, and mainly wheat, uh, barley, and, and corn. Uh, 25% of exports in the world come from that region. And fertilizers. I mean, when, when prices are up, farmers will want to grow more. And we need to grow more in order to make sure that this world remains food secure. Uh, but fertilizers are becoming quite expensive. And, uh, and there are two regions of the world where fertilizers are, are, are produced, uh, at a, at a very high level. One is, is Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, and the other one is actually, uh, here in Canada. Uh, now you may think, well, we have plenty of fertilizers here in Canada, so who cares? Well, prices are going to be impacted as well. Potash is potash. And a ton of potash may actually surpass uh, its previous record of $800 a ton, which will actually make it difficult for farmers. Uh, John Wright, back to the public opinion piece. And yes, there are a lot of people, we hear from them here on the show, who would want to send troops in, uh, certainly for a conventional situation. But that seems to be completely off the table. Are people feeling that Canadians, like uh, Canada, is not doing enough? 40% say that we're not doing enough. Only 70% say we're doing too much. So it's, it's clear, again, that there's a deep sense of humanitarian violation going on here. And the thing with the professor talking about is, is also something we have yet to feel but it's coming, and that is what uh, Deputy Prime Minister Finance Minister um, uh, said yesterday in her press conference, and that is we're going to experience collateral damage. And, you know, I think this is another element of how it's going to play out, and the question will be in the next, literally in the next number of days, what Russia decides to do if they, in fact, are able to invade the country fully, it will continue to have that economic impact on us, regardless of how vanquished the country is. This is going to go on for some time, the repercussions. So I don't think we factored that in yet, Libby. I think right now we're very focused on the visuals of trying to save people's lives and opening our doors to get people here, but I don't think we factored in the collateral issue of this at all. Hmm. Uh, and John, uh, also uh, in terms of our internal politics, uh, it's interesting you point out that uh, a week ago, Justin Trudeau's numbers were uh, in the in the in the toilet at a record <laughs> low because of the truckers, and suddenly everybody think I won't say everybody, but two thirds support the prime minister and how he is responding to this event. Yeah, and it's interesting because. Uh, if you went to our website, you'd see that I actually did three polls, uh, one in England, one in the United States, and one in Canada that measured all these same things. And I can tell you that all three countries are basically in lockstep with the views of, of everyone um, on, on the humanitarian and, and um, the, the issues dealing with Russia. It's interesting to see that Mr. Trudeau, in fact, was sitting at about 17% support for when he was dealing with the truckers, but that's now up two-thirds. Um, President Biden is roughly in the same range, 58 to 60%. And again, look at what you need to get an election. You only need I mean, uh, a, uh, a majority. You only need 37% here in this country. You need 51 there, so both the leaders are doing well. Mr. Johnson is actually below water. Only about 43%, in fact, support him fully for how he's performing. So he's got you know, a very difficult road ahead. But certainly this is, you know, it's a lifeline it's, uh, for Mr. Trudeau. It's a, a, a very different page that he's standing on than he was uh, two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also interesting with, with Biden. You know, a week ago he was uh, a bumbler who couldn't get anything done, and, and uh, he's getting widespread kudos for the way he released that intelligence. Well, I think the professor would agree that World events um, allow us to detach from a lot of the personal things that we worry about. Like we're concentrating now, I mean, in this house alone. I have a university student. I have another one, Professor, that actually goes to that room. Just a minute. Uh, whoa, 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 John, we're losing you with the line. So uh, 
uh, why don't we we're, we'll call we'll call you back in a break because we're losing you. I can't really hear you, um, Sylvain Charlebois. Um, so you're talking about record prices for futures. How long does it take for us to feel that uh, at the grocery store? <laughs> okay, so uh, the, the fuel story is going to impact us. Uh, Pretty quickly. Uh, so a barrel of oil right now is at over $112 U.S. dollars. Uh, so that's going to impact transportation costs. And the North American economy is a trucking economy. And so to move things around, you need fuel. So I suspect that's going to impact food prices or the cost uh, of food, I guess, or to produce and, and move food around. Uh, that's going to change very quickly. Uh, I would say within the next three to nine months, you're going to see a variety of food products being impacted by commodity prices. Uh, so uh, starting with, uh, I would say, uh, grain products, uh, bakery. We, we were expecting this actually in our in our food report back in December. So three months ago, we released Canada's food rye report, and we were expecting bakery prices to be impacted. We weren't expecting Ukraine to be invaded, but we were expecting higher future prices. And down the road after. Once we get to the summer and early fall, that's probably when we're going to see animal proteins. So I'm thinking about the meat counter, particularly, uh, will be impacted by what's happening right now. Okay. We have to take another break, but we will be back very soon with the impact of the attack on Ukraine here in Canada and how Canadians are reacting. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about how the war on Ukraine is impacting us here in terms of how Canadians feel about it, how they feel about the way our government is reacting, what they want, and also the impact on our economy in terms of now possible food prices. We are seeing futures for corn and wheat way up. Uh, and, uh, Dr. Charlebov, we were talking about the Ukraine side of it, but there's also a Russian side that's feeding into this. Absolutely. Um, now, Russia also uh, feeds a lot of people with its production. But the one thing that I suspect that Russia is realizing or has realized is that it can actually disrupt world markets or... Uh, it will want to increase its influence, I guess, uh, by disrupting world markets. Uh, it's capable of doing that in, in the agri-food sector in particular, but it can't do it without a very strong and important ally, and, and that ally is, is China. Diplomatically, over the last couple of days, you can see that China is not necessarily uh, openly supportive of what's happening with the invasion, but, but economically... When you look at the numbers, when you look at investments, uh, both Russia and China are in cahoots. They work together quite closely. And both can absolutely impact prices, can impact access, global food supply chains, uh, much more effectively now than just five years ago, uh, especially China. So, And I think Russia knows that very well. Um, what's ironic in all of this is that the last couple of years we've been dealing with a virus, uh, which allegedly came from China, and now we have this conflict, which again is disrupting the West, <laughs> uh, with Russia invading Ukraine, but China is still, uh, involved in this. So it's, it's really unfortunate. For the agri-food sector, I would say, uh, Libby, it's probably have happening at the worst time because they're still the the sector is actually still dealing with some major supply chain issues. And and uh, again, how will this further affect it? Uh, there's blockades by sea as well. Absolutely. So the Black Sea is super important. You probably will see reports soon. 
uh, of, uh, of food access challenges in the Middle East, they're going to be impacted very quickly, uh, I, I suspect, over the next couple of days, because uh, there is this, uh, this, uh, this blockade uh, at the port there. And everything that comes out of Russia, a lot of things that comes out of Russia and the Ukraine and Belarus would actually go through uh, the Black Sea. So that's another logistical nightmare that will impact uh, their European economy. But again, it will impact prices, and prices will impact us. John Wright, it's very early days in the war, and a lot of people are warning that this may go on for quite a while and things might change very dramatically. How do you see uh, public opinion shifting? Well, I think it's prescient that you have a professor on talking about the impact on commodities that are about our daily life. I mean, before Christmas, we were starting to get a sense of how people were feeling that the cost of living was rising. Then we had the <clears throat> the truckers that were blockading, you know, the border, which has caused supply chain issues. But this is really beyond something that people fully understand. I, I think when I, about five or six years ago, I was <clears throat> treated to uh, traveling down to Waterloo and looking at various computer models and things like that. And one of the top people there said that the next war with Russia, in fact, would be economic completely and, and said to the point that we we currently have on both sides of the ocean the ability to shut off power grids with a flick of a switch or to disrupt satellites or to do things that are not necessarily uh, weaponized um, that we would think of, but in fact are disruptors. So I think the professor is absolutely correct. The, 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 the real issue now, Libby, is that all of these things are being affected at the lag time of impact. Because, you know, we're, we're fixed today on the Bank of Canada raising rates, the gasoline's going up in price. And the majority of people in this, in, in this country do believe it's because of international events, not because of carbon tax. But this lag effect may now happen for the next quarter. And it, it'll be interesting to see for how long the pressure remains that says it's worth it. Because it may be in three months from now, people equate the hardship of all of this as, as being too hard to handle. That'll be an interesting time, but I'd be interested in hearing, you know, what is the lag time? Is it two months, three months? When, when does our ground zero hit with all of these other price issues? Hmm. Very interesting, uh, scary times, I must say. And thank you so much, both of you, for your insights, John Wright and Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.